It's Fox Top 5, the podcast where the hosts always agree to disagree. This week on Fox Top 5, Chad Chad Pergram. Pergram. I said, this might go well into the seventh, if not the eighth, frankly. And we might be here around the clock. You know, and it's a gigantic story. A gigantic story. And Brian Brian Yenis. I have never received so much backlash on my Twitter or social media um, for going out there and stating facts. Come together to share their top, top five, five stories, stories they've, they've covered. covered. Here are this week's hosts, Chad and Brian. Welcome to the Fox Top Five. I'm Chad Pergram, congressional correspondent for the Fox News Channel. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, national correspondent for the Fox News Channel, Brian Yenis. How are you? Hey, Chad. I'm doing well. The venerable Chad Pergram. This is an exciting thing. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> and, and the venerable Brian as well. Glad to have you as well. Every week on this podcast, reporters and personalities get together to share their top five on any given topic. And the thing about working in news is that it's unpredictable. Some news cycles are hectic with breaking stories. Other cycles seem like you're always searching for something. Brian and I have been in this business long enough to present to you the top five stories that we've ever covered. And how did you go about putting together your list, Brian. You know, this was an interesting thing. I, I thought about, okay, what are the biggest stories that if you walk down the street and you said the headline of your story, how many people would know what you what you covered? That was one thing. Okay, so, so in terms of do people know the story? Also, how many people did it affect? Was it a global story? I thought about that as well. And then slightly, I also thought about, you know, there's there's one story in my top five that has a special place in my heart that I thought, you know what, for, for me, that was a top five story uh, specifically because it, it made a big difference, uh, at least in my life and my career. So that's how I put it. It was it was hard, which, you know, I guess, I don't know, Chad, it, it's a good problem to have if it's hard <laughs> yes. to put together a list, if you've got other things to choose. How did you do it? Well, you know, you know, I did think a little bit about stories that were just, you know, major, you know, multidimensional stories, stories that had great impact uh, both in our country and were of historic significance. You know, I cover Congress. That's a lot of it. Um, also, sometimes there are stories that were just kind of favorites of mine and, and some that kind of have quirky, long tributaries and tales that you go somewhere that you don't think where they're going, you know, kind of with a punchline at the end. So that was uh, how I kind of went about it as well. Number five. Brian, give us your number five story. Okay. Okay. So number five for me is going to be Jeffrey Epstein. All things Jeffrey Epstein. I covered the trial and his subsequent controversial death. And that story to me was huge uh, for multiple different reasons. Obviously, you're talking about a convicted sex offender accused of uh, sexually abusing at least 30 uh, girls, minors, and then on top of that, you have somebody with with high political connections. It was really a lot of fodder for conspiracy theorists, and it's all anybody could talk about when they found him dead in the MDC jail here in New York City. So that story, I mean, it, it spoke for itself. But having to go on TV and explain to people and show autopsy photos and sh- and explain to people what a hyoid bone is and why, whether or not, you know, that bone broke and whether or not that meant that he was murdered in his jail cell or whether or not he killed himself, that story to me um, is a story that people will remember and is a story I will remember uh, forever. Um, you couldn't make it up. It seemed straight out of a Hollywood script. And to me, um, it's, it's my number five. 
And, and you always have questions about those types of stories. I mean, they just lead themselves to questions, too. That yep. was one of the things I, I was thinking about in putting together my list. Right. I, I expect that there will be a documentary on Jeffrey Epstein. People have questions years from now. Got it. Well, my number five, and as you know, I cover Capitol Hill, and this is a true Capitol Hill story. It's not something that a lot of people remember very well, but it's one of the rare times in all of my decades now covering Congress that I was actually able to really capture and document how they make the sausage. So in 2005, there was a congressman from Northeast Ohio by the name of Stephen LaTourette, who's not with us anymore. He passed away a few years ago, a Republican. He was a moderate and he was a pro-trade Republican. And they were working on something at the time in the summer of 2005 called CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement. Right. And Republicans were really struggling to get the votes on this. And you had Dick Cheney, who was the vice president. They were approaching the vote uh, later in the day. He was meeting with members in his office. Rob Portman, who's now the Republican senator from Ohio, the, was the re- U.S. trade representative at the time. He was working, you know, people in the halls and everything else. And I saw La Tourette in the speaker's lobby, which is right behind the House chamber. And I said, how are you going to vote tonight? And he said, well, you know, why don't you talk to me later? And I said, well, let's engage here off the record for a second. How are you thinking? You know, and again, he was somebody who, you know, worked with labor unions a lot and was somebody who was suspected. I mean, that's his district in northeast Ohio. You you know, you talk about most Republicans being pro-trade, but he was somebody who sometimes. And again, you think about, you know, that northern area through Ohio, you know, sometimes it's called they don't like this, the Rust Belt. I can talk about this because I'm from Ohio. But. They were very suspect about CAFTA as they were with NAFTA, which had been passed in uh, 1993. And so they didn't quite have the votes. And so they leaned on La Tourette and he came out and said he voted yes. And I was astonished by this because of what he had told me. And of course, every reporter in the building wanted to talk to La Tourette. And so one of the attendants in the speaker's lobby, this is like at one o'clock in the morning, because he voted yes, which is not what his position had been before, because he was worried about these labor provisions. Right. And this guy from the speaker's lobby comes over and he said, La Tourette wants to talk to you. He's the only one you'll talk to because he said he would talk to you later in the day. And I'm like, great. So there's this cluster of reporters around everybody else. Everybody's looking for La Tourette. And I keep looking over at this guy and he keeps shaking me off like a like a pitcher looking for a signal from. And finally, he goes, yes. And so I walk over to him. He takes me over into the ceremonial office for the Speaker of the House, and there's La Tourette. And I get this one-on-one with him. And he explains why it was important to vote for that bill and how they worked on him. And he didn't get anything for the bill, but he said this is a Republican president. It was George W. Bush at the time. And he got some certain assurances how the trade would work, and so he was satisfied. I tell you that to tell you the second part of the story. In November of that year, They had this budget bill on the floor, which was very controversial. And Denny Hastert, again, the Speaker of the House at the time, said earlier in the night that he wasn't sure that bill was ready to pass. So they go to the vote. And this is about, again, one o'clock in the morning. You know, bad things seem to happen around the Capitol one o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And they're voting on this. And I interviewed La Tourette and he explained why he was a hard no. And there were things with Medicare and this and that. And he just lays it all out. So maybe about a half hour later, the vote is just closed, and I'm talking to Pat Tiberi, who at the time was a Republican congressman from Columbus. And I said, how, you know, would, would, would members like you from Ohio vote yes, but another member vote no? And he said, well, La Tourette, he voted yes. 
I said, no, he didn't. I just interviewed him. I have him on tape a few minutes ago, and he explained. He goes, he was a yes on the board. Huh. I said, well, I will check. So about 10 minutes later, I see La Tourette. And, I'm, and I, this is back when I just did radio. And I made sure that I had my recorder rolling at the time because I wanted to give a time check to demonstrate in the piece. You know, wh- you know, I said, well, Congressman, I said, it's now 1.40 in the morning. I said, and about a half hour ago, you were a no. I said, what, what changed in a half hour? And he explained how, you know, he said, George W. Bush is my president. And they came to me and everything else. He said, and he said, I thought it was the right thing to do. He said, this is not the final product. They have to send it to the Senate and then maybe bounce it back over here. He said, if it comes back without these provisions, he said, I'll vote no. He said, but I think to advance that as a Republican and being consistent with the Republican Party, it was okay to vote yes. I'm like, okay. So you see this transmogrification in both right. cases of La Tourette's votes on this over the period of a few minutes. And I said, well, I said, what do you say? And I mentioned Chardon, Ohio. Chardon, Ohio is a little town up in Geauga County in northeast Ohio, Brian. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew some people from Chardon, people when I went to high school, even though I'm from the other part of the state. So I, Chardon, I knew was in his district. And I said, I said, so when you go back home and you talk to people in Chardon about how you voted, what will you tell them? And he said the following, Brian, and this is the pièce de résistance. He said, well... Chardon is under 10 inches of snow, and they don't really care what we did here tonight. Wow. And the Cleveland Plain Dealer, they do this like cheers and jeers thing in the Sunday section. They gave him a jeer saying, Congressman, we are perfectly capable of shoveling our driveways and thinking about politics at the same time. (laughs) And a few weeks later, because this was getting close to Thanksgiving, I see La Tourette, and he's like, hey, you know what... uh, he was mad at me. He said, you ruined my Thanksgiving. And I said, I ruined your Thanksgiving, you know. And I said, look, did you have a problem with my, I said, call me, talk to my editor, talk to my boss, talk to, you know. And he said, no, he said it was just, and, and I think what happened was that because it's so rarely up here do we really get to capture the sausage making. And in all my years here, that is one of the few instances where they go in, they need the vote on somebody, they do the horse trading, and they pull it off. And they barely sneaked the bill across the finish line. And you and were there for not, it. And I was there. Both I documented the event. Right. Twice. Right. Around one congressman. So that was number five. <laughs> number four. So number four for you. Okay. Uh, number four. So this is what we were discussing when when I said that there are some stories that have a special place in your heart and, you know, for, for different reasons. So. 2013, I'm about to leave the Fox News channel. I'm a digital reporter. I think I'm going to go into local television. And all of a sudden, Pope Benedict decides to resign. To which Fox tells me, you know, it would be really good if you went to Rome to cover the conclave, which is the choosing of a pope. And I said, really? And I was working for FoxNewsLatino.com at the time, which was an English language website covering Latino affairs in the United States. And I said, okay, I'll go. And I was a one-man band and I was doing streaming and, uh, you know, shooting my own stuff and writing my own stuff when all of a sudden the smoke rises in Rome (laughs) and we have the selection of a pope. Now, mind you, I'm there for Latino affairs type thing, so I know... Pretty much, I've done all my research, the likelihood that a Latin American pontiff is going to be chosen is not likely at all. And I'm standing there as it rains, and everyone's gathered in St. Peter's uh, Square in the Basilica, and all of a sudden, 
I hear Mario Bergoglio of Argentina is chosen, and <laughs> the entire crowd, like a wave, is just shocked, right? And then when they say Papa Francesco is his name, then there's like a collective like, huh? Are you serious? Nobody had ever chosen the name Pope Francis or Papa Francesco in all the history of the Catholic Church. And so this was the first time. And it all just sort of hit me as it hit everybody on TV that, wow, this was the first Latin American pontiff, the first Latino. And he walks out in front of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people as it's raining. And the very first thing he says is that he asks everyone to pray for him. And it was one of those moments that still gives me chills because I swear to you, Chad, I thought I went deaf. The <laughs> silence that took that city and that crowd, I thought my ears just went completely uh, shut down. I thought I thought mm. I went deaf in the moment and it was a beautiful moment. And I was felt so lucky to be there for this moment because he felt already like a different person uh, than what was Pope Benedict, who at the time was more of a scholarly pope. And, you know, this was somebody who who gave people the ideas of, of Pope John Paul. And so. So anyway, I'm, I'm there and I get a call from uh Shepard Smith's show, uh, and this is 2013, and they say, we need you to get on TV. Mind you, this is 2013, and I have been out of college for three years, and I have <laughs> never been on national television, and I run to the hotel, and I put on what I think is a decent amount of powder on my face. I haven't slept in more than a day, and I go to the top of our Rome bureau, and I go live with Shepard Smith next to me, and I remember absolutely nothing because I have not seen the clip to this day because I cannot stand seeing the clip. I just won't do it. <laughs> because I I remember sitting on the steps of the Rome Bureau and I broke down and cried because I thought it would be the last time I would ever be on television because I thought it was that bad. Um, and, <laughs> and, I, and here you are. And, and I got a call the next day to say, we want you to do the inauguration of Pope Francis for The Edge, which is all of our Fox local stations. And it's me on the roof and it's Greg Jarrett and a priest back in New York. And we're talking for an hour about the conclave and all things Pope Francis. And I come back and I sign my my very first contract with the Fox News Channel, of course. And that's how this all started. So that story, I love it. You know, not only are we talking about a billion Catholics, and it means so much to so many people. For me, I felt like Pope Francis. He's my man. He touched me. He blessed me. And I think I owe it all to him. Is how I say this. So there we go. That's number four for you. I got it. Well, you know, here's another story that I have, and this is one of these things where you know sometimes it pays off to be lucky than good or being at the right place at the right time. Right. Something like that. And th this is an Ohio story, but it culminates here on Capitol Hill. And it starts a long time ago. This is number four for me. So I started working at a radio station in Cincinnati when I was in high school in the late 1980s. And there was a crazy, crazy, as crazy as I've ever seen to this day, sex scandal involving the sitting congressman, a guy by the name of Buzz Lukens, who was a Republican from southwestern Ohio. And what was happening, and this is not the story, but this is what leads to the story. A Columbus, Ohio TV station had caught him on camera having a conversation, and this was a sting that they did essentially, with a woman who at a McDonald's in Columbus, and he was having sex with her two teenage daughters, and he was trying to get her a government job to be quiet. So that's what starts this. So Buzz Lukens had been in office 
back in the late 60s, early 70s, went away, was in the state legislature, ran for governor unsuccessfully, came back to Congress because there had been a congressman who then came in between a guy by the name of Tom Kindness. Congressman Kindness. You can't beat that, right? (laughs) So Tom Kindness runs for the Senate in 1986 against John Glenn, you know, American hero loses in 86. So he's out of office. So Buzz Lukens comes back in. I give you those two other names for a reason, Buzz Lukens and Tom Kindness. So then you have this scandal. So Buzz Lukens has a problem. And I remember covering this nine ways to Sunday. You know, there was the legal part of it. There was the political part. He was going to run again still. A lot of people didn't believe that he ever would do these things. He was a very good shoe leather politician. So Tom Kindness decides he's going to run again. Hmm. He's going to come back after being away for a couple of years. So you have Buzz Lukens, the sitting congressman, who's very well known, who's been at the, who's been in office t- two different occasions, late 60s, early 70s, and back in the 80s, and Tom Kindness, who was then after him. So then there's this guy who's the local state representative with this unpronounceable Teutonic Germanic surname who dithered and dithered and dithered about whether or not he was going to run. And... He finally decided to get into the race. And just because, and it's a Republican district, it's more Republican now, but just because if you won the Republican primary does not mean that you would be elected to be the congressman. So you have Tom Kindness running, the former congressman, Buzz Lukens, the tarnished current congressman running, and then this other guy with this name that nobody could pronounce running. The Republican primary happens in May of 1990, very early May of 1990. And the guy with the unpronounceable Germanic surname beats the sitting congressman and the former congressman. And the name of the guy with the name that nobody could pronounce is John Andrew Boehner. And I covered his first race for Congress. It was a crazy race. He then got elected that fall. I come to Washington a couple of years later when I finished grad school. I work at C-SPAN at first. I covered him closely. And then, of course, in 2011, he matriculates to become Speaker of the House. I covered him in 2005 when Tom DeLay, the former majority leader, got into trouble and then stepped down from his position. And in early uh, 2006, Boehner became the majority leader. You know, and so I've covered this guy until a few years ago. I'd covered John Boehner ever since I'd been in journalism and (laughs) back in Ohio and here. So, again, one of those kind of witnesses to history, much like your story with the the Pope. Let me me ask you with uh, with Boehner. Did you think that he would rise to where he rose? Had no idea. Yeah. I I mean, I even remember him coming to our high school as a state representative because it was in his state house district to talk, you know, just talk to civics classes and things like that. Uh, I remember I was just a kid. This was a couple of years before I started working the radio. Just a kid interested in politics. Um, and there used to be a restaurant in Middletown, Ohio. J.D. Vance, uh, this is Hillbilly Elegy, Middletown, Ohio, which is close to where I'm from. And all of the local county politics were decided in the back room of the Liberty Restaurant. And so one day they just said, why don't you come in sit with us and talk, you know, and learn, which is what I did. And, and there was John Boehner, who was this new state representative at that. I mean, how would you have known yeah, at that stage? No, of course, of course. Um, it was fascinating. I mean, no, I don't think anybody could have predicted that, frankly, you know, because he was trying. I'll leave you on this point here, Brian. He was in the leadership pretty fast when he came to Washington. When the Republicans flipped the House in 1994 after the historic election, he was the number four. He was the House conference chairman for the Republicans and then was shown the door in 1998 
And so he was moving up in leadership very fast and then got sidetracked, which is why his rise on this second path all the way to the speakership is so amazing. Because usually once you get bounced from leadership in Congress, you aren't coming back. But Boehner did. It's fascinating. So that's number four. Yeah, that's that's truly fascinating. And it also speaks to Chad. I mean, just how old you are. No, I'm kidding. You have been been there for, for everything, Chad. It's incredible. I mean, this is why we love you. You're a legend. Number three. Um, and I will move on with my, my number 13 three. years and number three. Here we go. Yes. COVID-19. Okay. And I know this is generic. Uh, obviously, it's we're still going through it. But a once-in-a-generation global pandemic um, is something that has to be up there, particularly for me because I am a national correspondent based in New York City. And this is where it all started. Uh, outside of the Seattle outbreak in the nursing home there. This is where uh, the epicenter was for many, many months. And I remember getting the call to go to Bayonne, New Jersey, because the Royal Caribbean cruise ship was coming in, and they believed they had sick passengers. And on a pouring day, I go out there uh, to Bayonne, uh, to New Jersey, where Royal Caribbean is docked, and I see passengers coming out freely. No one's really wearing masks at that time, obviously. And I'm outside with the ship, and it looks like a tropical storm outside, and it's pouring on me and the the ship is rocking as it's docked and there are ambulances that are showing up um, a few ambulances picking people up and I I remember that moment because it was a moment where it felt like wow has this arrived here and I know that it was already here when we look back we know that it was already in our society but at the time it was like wow is this one of the ships that's going to bring this um, horrific virus into New York, into the United States. And I remember just, I look back and just remember how how little we knew at the time. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a story for a bit. We knew that it was in Seattle. We knew that it was going to be in New York. But I think we're going to have control over this. And then, you know, within a week, the New York City is shut down. And we all know what happened after that. But for me, covering that story, um, it was a story that we had to be out there to cover uh i was renting cars and it you know and working out of rental cars so we were no longer allowed in the studios and i'm driving from point to point from from outside of a hospital to to outside of the uh the kravitz center which is where they set up a temporary hospital and we are having discussions about hundreds of people dying and thousands of people dying and it all happened so quickly and at the same time i remember chad feeling for the first time in my career feeling genuinely scared about reporting a story because this was something i could not see yet i was outside to the point where if you look at a live shot between bill hammer and i when we're outside uh at one point i'm wearing gloves and I'm holding my microphone wearing gloves because nobody had any idea. And, you know, we're picking up rental cars and we're trying to wipe them down. And I don't know if it's going to be safe or not. Mm-hmm. And for months and months, this is what we reported on deaths that were happening at NYPD. You know, I interviewed the NYPD uh, commissioner, uh, Dermot Shea, face to face in a room without a mask, you know, in the early days. We were talking mm-hmm. about NYPD officers who, you know, what they felt like they needed. They didn't feel like they had enough equipment. Um, and, you know, it just speaks to how quickly the story evolved. Uh, you know, he would not sit down for an interview after that face to face, given what we now know about COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, Given 
the the pace of the story, the number of lives that were impacted, and also my own personal fear in the field, as well as the fact that my grandmother at the time that I was covering the story was one of those people in New York who could not get help because the ambulances uh, were just so overwhelmed. And the I know this was, was very so personal and emotional. It was, and it was the first time that a story had ever impacted me, and I let that show on air. You know, we're taught not to do that, um, but I... I pleaded with people, please do not call 911 because people like my own grandmother who survived COVID, um, her sister did not, but she survived, um, was unable to get help because so many other people were calling out of fear and and whatnot. And so um, a a tremendously scary time for our nation, for me, and I think a story that has taught all of us um, has has really, I think, will color how how I do this job for the rest of my career. Well, you know, courage, uh, you know, the way you did that, you know, we all admired how you did that and walking around New York. And I know that, you know, New York was really the epicenter of this when this really started. And, and you know, we all admired your reporting. And as I say, courage, you know, doing that. Uh, we didn't, you know, something you can't see, you know, you can take safety precautions. You can't really do that, you know, with the virus necessarily. You don't you don't know where it is or who has it. And that, that was right. what was so disturbing. About you could this. not see it. And there was so much we did not know. Absolutely. Well, my number three uh, is a little lighter uh, than that, and it's a story that goes back a while. Uh, I'm not going to tell all Ohio stories. My my final two are not Ohio stories by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) This has nothing to do with Congress at all. And again, I told you in high school and college, then I started to work at a radio station, a couple of radio stations actually down in Cincinnati. And I'm a big baseball fan. In fact, I was at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati on September 11th, 1985, the night that Pete Rose, player manager of the Cincinnati Reds, broke Ty Cobb's hit record. No way. And scored the game. And as a kid growing up in Southwest Ohio, the big red machine of the 70s, everybody's a Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez, Cesar Geronimo, Dave, you know, that's what we did. It's all about the Reds in those days. So here I am in 1989, And there's this scandal that erupts regarding Pete Rose, all-time hits leader in Major League Baseball, player manager of the Reds, that he had gambled on baseball. And John Dowd, who later became former President Trump's attorney, was commissioned by Major League Baseball to put together something called the Dowd Report. And I have two full copies at my house of the Dowd Report. It's damning in terms of what it says about Pete Rose, because it's very meticulous. On May such and such, the Reds were playing the Montreal Expos in Montreal, and at such and such a time, Rose called this bookie and place, and then, you know, and it was, and so you get to the end of the summer in 19, so I was not, I'm a junior reporter at that stage. Okay. But this thing just engrossed Cincinnati. And so I was never the lead reporter, but covered a hearing on this before the Ohio Supreme Court. Uh, covered a uh, before the county common police court where a judge he just died recently Norbert Nadel was his name basically took on Major League Baseball because he thought that Bart Giamatti who was the baseball commissioner uh, really got into Rose and was being unfair for Rose and some people think that Nadel kind of this was some home cooking you know you have Cincinnati's first citizen here you even had a guy by the name of Robert Rubin who was the chief judge of the of the federal court in Cincinnati who called a press conference mind you This is a federal judge because the case came before his federal court on an appeal and basically was saying, oh, you know, again, Major League Baseball is coming down unfairly because they're targeting Rose. And so I covered bits and pieces of this throughout the spring and summer of 1989. 
And then word came in late August that there had been an agreement and that Pete Rose, you know, he, he would not accept uh, or, or not, not, you know, say that he was guilty of anything, but he and Bart Giamatti signed this agreement that would give him a, a suspension from baseball. He stepped down from being the uh, manager of the Reds. He is ineligible to this day for the Hall of Fame, despite owning more than 30-some-odd Major League Baseball records. Uh, is not allowed in a, in a park, you know, unless he gets special dispensation. Never bet on his team. And so I remember the day that they kicked him out, and I covered the press conference at Riverfront Stadium with Tommy Helms, who was a native Cincinnatian, much the same as Rose, because he had been named the, the manager then. And there's one thing that happened later in the day that stood out to me. Uh, and, I, and, you know, again, you talk about you're a young guy and you get this opportunity to cover stuff, you know, on a national level. I, I was filing then these are radio reports for ABC Radio. Here I am, 20 years old. And I'm, I'm like, wow, I'm filing a report for National Radio Network. <laughs> it's wow. a big deal. I, I did this all the time. So I interviewed a guy by the name of Bob Housem. Bob Housem was the general manager of the Reds and the architect of the Big Red Machine arguably one of the best baseball teams of all time in the 70s. And Housem was always known for being a very moral guy, church-going guy. Uh, he would not look well on any of this with Pete Rose. And so I, I, I found Bob Housem's number, and this was the day that he got thrown out of baseball, uh, Rose did, and called him. And he, I asked him, should Rose be in the Hall of Fame, which is still a question of debate today. And he listed off, you know, the, the laundry list of transgressions, moral transgressions by Rose. And then he said, but to have a Hall of Fame without the person who has the most career base hits, what is the Hall of Fame for that? You know, the idea that you have, you know, for Pete Rose, you know, if, you, if you're a Major League Baseball and you get a uh, player and you get 200 hits in a season, which is pretty hard to do, frankly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Pete Rose will tell you that if you got 200 hits for 21 consecutive years, you would still be 56 hits behind him. That's how crazy his record is, 4,256 career hits. And he's not in the Hall of Fame. And that issue still comes up today. And I covered a lot of that many years ago in Cincinnati as a very, very junior reporter. As a baseball fan, I will say Pete Rose belongs in the Hall of Fame. I don't know where you stand on this, but I do believe that if you you know put all the players that deserve to be in based on their records, but you know what? Tell the story in the Hall of Fame so that people can remember and make their own decisions, even if you have to do the asterisk. But what that man did on the field, uh, you, you have to acknowledge him. And, you know, it's about time that they bring him back to the sport. So I feel maybe because I wasn't alive at the time, I didn't quite understand, you know, I even with the steroid players, that's how I feel about it, too. So I, And when I you know. talk about steroids and Rose, you know, the only thing he ever took was an extra base. <laughs> well put. That's exactly it. Just put P. Rose there. He belongs there. The countdown continues after this. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Number two. All right. Number two for you. Number two. It has to be the 2020 election, Pennsylvania. I was sent to Pennsylvania to cover the 2020 election. Uh, I was in Wilkes Bar uh, in Luzerne County. And that's where I was stationed when the votes started coming in. And of course, we all know 
fresh to everyone's mind. Mail-in ballot voting was happening, and there was so much that I needed to explain to people outside of the state of Pennsylvania, and even those, frankly, inside Pennsylvania, because it's the first time that they were doing mail-in ballots on such a large scale. And so that story, to me, I did not expect to last for a month and a half, two, and and so forth. Um, But it was an important story because I felt as though I really wanted to show people how the sausage was made. And it was really important for me to be in the room as they were counting the votes and explaining the process because obviously so many people uh, took issue with the count and also took issue with trusting our system. And to me, uh, that is such a dangerous um, accusation to make about uh, fraud at such a a national level and as well, uh, you know, throughout Pennsylvania that I really felt it was incumbent on me to make sure that I showed people as much as I could uh, how the process actually worked and why it is that the mass fraud that was being alleged we looked into it, and this is why we did not see that. And here are the safeguards that were put in place. And I just really felt as though it was important for me to be very precise with my words and to try to bring people behind the curtain. And I know that it was a very difficult story to report for so many people. Um, I have never received so much backlash on my Twitter or social media um, for going out there and stating facts. Um to try to find some sort of clarity at a time when emotions were at uh, their peak and it was clouded in so much politic. Um, So I really felt that was a really important moment for me to get Pennsylvania right, uh, to follow through with it and to try to explain people the processes and what we actually knew was happening in the courts um, and what was being proved and not proved in regards to mass electoral fraud. And so um, it was an important story for for many different reasons and for me as a reporter I just really felt I needed to language matters words matter and it it never mattered more than that story language is always so important in what we we do and and accuracy Uh, I often talk about how context leads us to accuracy you know you can you can say certain things that are accurate but if you don't have the right context that can make it inaccurate as well and that's something I I often think about really well well said yes thank you Chad. yeah Yeah, that's good well, my number two deals very much with accuracy. And uh, it's a story that kind of has a little bit of tangency now. And it's one of these stories that when you cover Congress, you know, it's just not hearings and it's just not press conferences and votes on the floor. It's that every issue comes through Congress is the bottom line. And so sometimes when you start to see, at least in Washington, things happening on other beats, I say, oh, you know, we should get on this because, you know, there's somebody up here is going to know about this because they will have been briefed or it falls in their area. It's a staffer. It might be a member. Every issue comes through Congress, science issues, um, foreign policy issues. You know, it's all health issues, agriculture issues. It all comes through Congress at one stage or another. So you can always, you know, your beat is, you know, it's stupendous in that sense. You know, you're always looking for something. So this was in uh, the spring of 2011. And I'd actually been up in New York. Uh, my wife is from New York, and we had been there for the weekend. And we came home, and we've talked about baseball. I'm going to talk about hockey for a second here. I'm a big hockey fan. And the Washington Capitals were playing the Tampa Bay uh, Lightning in the playoffs. And Alex Ovechkin, it was a late afternoon playoff game, scores a goal with just a couple of ticks left on the clock to send the game into overtime. I mean, and the Caps, I think, ultimately lost that game. 
usually I go to bed pretty late for whatever reason, because of the weekend I was just tired. And I would have gone to bed had it not been for Alex Ovechkin scoring that goal. And while I'm sitting there watching the overtime, and as you know, in, in hockey, they keep playing. <laughs> you know, they don't do just a fixed period of time. They keep because they got to have a winner in the in the playoffs, you know. And so we're settling in and I look at my phone. This is a Blackberry at the time. And I see that they have taken the lid off the pool at the White House. Now, what does that mean? The pool refers to a pool of television cameras and networks, ABC, CBS, Fox, NBC, so on and so forth. We're always sharing a pool. We share it. And when we say they put the lid on, that means that they're not going to have anything else that day from the president or anybody else. And very rarely do you see them take the the lid off the pool. In other words, oh, we might do something, especially on a Sunday night. And I thought to myself, well, that's kind of weird. And I can count on one hand how many times that's happened. And I just found it very curious. And then all of a sudden I started to think, ooh, they're taking on a Sunday night. Is this a national security issue? Is this did something happen to the president or the vice president or something happened to you know, this is President Obama at the time? You know, you know, one of the kids. We just didn't know. And so I start calling and emailing around just saying, what do we know? You know, was there a bomb somewhere? Was there a terrorist threat? We didn't know what this was. There, had there been a nuclear strike? So after a few minutes, I'm like, I need to go upstairs and I fire up my laptop upstairs and I start digging around and I'm still watching. And they say, you know, at one point they say, you know, the president is going to talk at some point tonight, And they kept pushing it back. And pretty quickly, I was able to get this into the lane, not for reporting, not for reporting that this had something to do with Osama bin Laden. Hmm. Did they capture him? Did they kill? You know, what did they do? And so I kept digging and calling and I got something pretty definitive that they had killed Osama bin Laden. And I told this story to somebody and this is coming out through Hill sources, because, again, as I say, you know, and this is from covering local government. You know, if you cover local government, the best stories about the county commissioners come out from the sheriff's department. The best stories about the sheriff's department come out through you know, the road department, the best stories about the road department come out through the water department. You know, so it's kind of the same thing. So the stories about, you know, somebody up here is going to know. And so I told this story to somebody recently and they said, yo, you put that on the air right away. And I said, no, absolutely not. I, I didn't feel confident in it. I mean, I was getting it from enough places, but I was like, we cannot be wrong on this story, period end of conversation. Multiple sources you had it and you still held back. Absolutely. And finally, at one point, I get an email from somebody who I trust and they are in the right lane up here who would know something about these types of things. And they said, call me. And I called this person and they said, the president is going to walk out later tonight and announce that we killed Osama bin Laden. And I said, how do you know that? Because I was on the call with the president. Wow. That's a limited universe of people. Yep. But they had obviously briefed certain members up here and certain staffers. Now, that's not that small universe because you think about, you know, different with the intelligence committees and you think about the leadership in the House and the Senate. You know, this it's not that tiny a universe, but we're talking about it ain't that big. But I won't tell you who. But so (laughs) I'm getting it from multiple sources, one place. But this is a message with direct custody. 
In other words, they were on the call where the president said, this is what happened and this is what we're going to do. So I felt very confident in that. And I thought for a second, is this right? Do we got it? And I'm like, yep. I sent out a note. And I still have the email, Brian. Multiple sources, bin Laden killed. <laughs> Geraldo Rivera was doing his show from D.C. that night. His show used to be on on Sunday night, and it just happened to be he was out of D.C. If you look at the tape, you actually see a stagehand walk in with a piece of paper and hand it to Geraldo Rivera. And he announces this on the air. And a few minutes later, they tried to get me live on the phone. They dropped the phone, actually, trying to, because I think because they were doing the call out of D.C. or the show out of D.C. In fact, and I was so mad, I threw my phone because I'm like, we dropped the call. You know, you know, you and they, oh, they finally got imagine. me back. But the best thing about that was that, A, we were first, at least in terms of broadcast, getting that out. We beat others by four minutes, which is a lifetime on a story like that. But the best thing is that we were accurate, and they had, in fact, killed Osama bin Laden. Ooh, that is a story. And I remember watching our coverage and seeing Geraldo, and I remember the hand. And I also remember going out to Times Square at the time and celebrating with everyone, uh, just documenting myself and taking photos with my phone of people, just uh, fire firefighters and NYPD officers celebrating in Times Square, looking at the big jumbo screen and just seeing the news. Uh, everybody felt, especially if you were in New York City and Washington, D.C., that you really needed to just go out into the street no matter what time it was, and to just take part in that jubilation. Um, I'll never forget that moment. None of us will. And it's incredible, Chad, that you were the man to get it for us and, and well before anybody else. So great Thank story, it was, Chad. It was a strange evening. Number one. <laughs> so you're number one. Least. My number one. It has to be the protests and the riots of 2020. Um, to me, this was a moment that encompassed race relations in this country, uh, police brutality, COVID-19, years and years of so many issues uh, boiling to the top in, in what was just nonstop coverage by all the networks of what were peaceful protests mixed with riots, mixed with looting. And I got to tell you, I did not expect like many of these stories, I did not expect it to last as long as it did. I did not expect it to be as intense as it was in New York City. I, I, I was out there on a Saturday. We were told to follow the protests. We followed the protests. We had one of our security guys who was able to get us some intel about the fact that we believe that there's going to be a protest in Flatbush, Brooklyn. We go to Flatbush, Brooklyn, and there is a police line with helicopters in the air. We just we parked our car. We followed where the helicopter was. And that was the site of the very first real outside of what happened um, at the Barclays Center. This was the very first real violent exchange and really kicked off mm. the rest of the week in New York City. We just happened to be at the right place at the right time. We went deep in Brooklyn. We saw the helicopters. We saw the police line. And we saw the moment that a few things were thrown to police. And then all of a sudden, a couple people jumped on NYPD vans. And all hell broke loose. And my photographer at the time, freelancer Oleg, uh, was live on Fox Report with our camera as we are 
running with police as the police line runs after people who are breaking windows and throwing things at them and we are darting down the block and you see me on TV trying to put my IFB in my ear so I can listen to programming mm-hmm. and, and uh, John Scott is talking and, and he's trying to narrate what he's saying and he sees me on the can- on the TV and I'm trying to get some signal out and trying to make sure he can hear me while also protecting myself from flying projectiles and you can see the police officers beating people down mm-hmm. and also people trying to throw things at police officers in our shot and before you know it there's an NYPD cruiser that is lit on fire um, and there are things flying and I am live from that day on for like I don't know 10 days and we go all the way through night you know we, we're doing the p.m. shift so it's like 6 p.m. to 5 a.m. every day where we are just showing people what's happening and and that moment of narrating you know officers being pelted with glass bottles and and speaking to a I'll never forget this in Brooklyn that first night speaking to a Brooklyn nurse who had just got off her shift taking care of COVID-19 patients who threw herself in between rioters and NYPD officers. And I interviewed her live on air with Hammer and John Scott. And she said, this is my community. I understand, but we need to bring the peace. And this is somebody at the height of COVID who was throwing herself in the line and trying to put herself, trying to bring calm and peace to a situation. And I mean, I just could not believe the, the, just the symbolism and what was happening in front of our eyes and we went all the way through the night uh, ended up at union square where things were lit on fire as well and and vehicles and um that began what would be just non-stop coverage for days and days and days and i'll also never forget seeing uh, looters in um taking over midtown manhattan as well as soho uh the the big shops and the more expensive shops downtown and realizing that my photographer and i and our two security guards were the only ones there and nypd was nowhere to be seen in a situation where every single shop in soho was being ransacked in front of our eyes and macy's i mean macy's being ransacked in front of our eyes and and seeing people being taken out of there it was a sense of chaos that i've never experienced and it felt in some you know i haven't been in a war zone but there were moments where it did feel as though you know we can get seriously injured at at any moment during all of this and i also just think it was so important chad for me during that time for me to um you know i was it's always you and i we go on different shows and sometimes we go on our opinion programming and that can be a a tough thing for a news person because you got to just stick with the facts and the opinion person can say whatever they want but i remember going on sean hannity's show many many nights um as things things were happening and trying to navigate um live interviews between me and somebody on the street who's very passionate about how they feel a certain way and obviously sean is passionate about how he feels about a certain way and just trying to find clarity and peace in live interviews during that time so that our viewers can sort of understand context and perspective and hear the other side uh while at the same time trying to be um accurate to what i'm seeing with my own eyes it was uh, again i thought a very important moment for me to just try to get it right as best as i could i, I felt a very deep responsibility to make sure that uh, we called rioters rioters and peaceful protesters peaceful protesters when we saw it and that we tried to um to try to just get the camera rolling as often as we could to bring live pictures so that people can make up their own minds so that was an, uh, just a an important moment and i think in our nation's history and and also for for my career as as i as i continue to grow and you know i I don't have the chad program years yet um but you know (laughs) it is uh for me it was just um i got to tell you 2020 chad i almost felt like it was 
10 years worth of a reporter's career logged into one year in many ways. Um, well, you did, again, very courageous reporting. I'm glad you're okay. You know, again, doing this in the middle of the pandemic, um, just the violence and everything that we saw. You were out there every day. And a tip of my cap to you, Brian, it was remarkable every day. And again, you know, just the long shifts and no food. And you're trying to get the story right and trying to, again, capture the right language uh, to report on this accurately. Right. And and try not to get COVID, right? Because I have somebody, I have family back at home. So that was, exactly. we, we had to send my partner to uh, to St. Louis because I was like, you know, there's no way I'm coming back home to you. You know, these are all the things you got to think about, but um, just right. remarkable. Right. Well, precision of language was something and, and violence, frankly, that weighed on me. This is not in 2020, but my number one was this year in 2021. It was very early this year. It was January 6th and the riot here at the Capitol. And as you know, they were certifying the Electoral College results. This is a process that happens usually just in the House chamber with a a joint uh, session of Congress, the House and Senate meeting together. But if you have, you know, a contest to any individual state slate of electors, the House and Senate then go back to their separate chambers and debate this and then vote. And of course, when I got to the Capitol, we thought this might go on actually for a couple of days. I didn't come in until just about one o'clock on January 6th because this it's two hours of debate per chamber plus voting. Uh, we thought they would contest at least six states. I said this might go well into the seventh, if not the eighth, frankly. And we might be here around the clock. You know, and it's a gigantic story, a gigantic story. So we can't be here. So I was, I was going to maximize my time and get here as late as possible. And we had other people handling things. When my wife dropped me off here, there was a palpable tension on Capitol Hill. And in fact, when I got out of her car on, on Independence Avenue across the street from the Capitol, there was this, this, this wall of people coming at me to get into the building. And one of them was Congresswoman Kat Kamick from Florida, a freshman, and also Bill Hazinga. And they both kind of grabbed me. They said, Chad, they're not even letting members into the Capitol right now. And I thought to myself, because they let members in for anything. I mean, you, you get into a constitutional issue, the speech and debate clause, that you, they cannot be detained, you know, in, you know, during the, the conduct of their duties as a member of Congress. So I'm processing that, but I'm like, you know, I just got to get in the bill. I got to get jacked into the matrix here and get, get to doing things. So I go into the Longworth building right there, go downstairs, go through the tunnel, get up to my booth and go down into the basement of the Capitol, which is where I've been doing my reporting. Uh, pretty much since the pandemic, kind of I've tried to get away from some of the other reporters, frankly. And this is where I've been doing most of my reporting in the basement of the Capitol. It was pretty clear early on to me that this was going badly. You had uh, a threat in the Cannon Building, which is right there. You had a threat at one of the Library of Congress buildings. These were, Later, we figured out these were the bombs, you know. And I pointed out this on the air that this was all going on as they were trying to do this with the vice president of the United States in the building. And then we started to see the video. And I start texting and emailing with sources and people around here that they broached the building. And that it was getting violent. And there was a point where I said, these are not protesters. These are not demonstrators. In fact, later in the evening, just, you know, because it's a colloquial term, I caught myself 
And because I called them protest, and I said, no, 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 these are rioters, these are marauders, you know, there are a couple other terms I used. But again, because of precision of language, a demonstrator is, a, dem- a protester is something, somebody stands outside and holds a sign. This is not what that was all about. And the fact that they broached the Capitol, and immediately, you know, I talk about context, and I wanted to put this into context very quickly. And the first thing I thought of was in 1954 when Puerto Rican nationalists came and shot up the House chamber. And I said, this isn't that. That's similar. There was a Capitol Police officer, two, who were killed here in July of 1998. We have another one killed this year. Imagine just how bad this has been this year. I said, no, that's not that. That was just a crazed one gunman. Here you have this mass of people who are storming the building. And I went on the air, Brian, and I said, This is the worst incursion of an American government institution since the Battle of Bladensburg in 1814, which was part of the War of 1812. This is when the British came. Bladensburg is a suburb in Maryland, not far from the United States Capitol, not far from Washington, D.C. And the British advanced from Bladensburg in 1814 and burned the U.S. Capitol and burned the White House. And I can show you places where there's some remnants of that in both buildings. And it was clear to me that that was on that level. That for the first time in 207 years, 207 years, something like that was happening to an American government institution. And it just wasn't a day when they were out of session. They were certifying the Electoral College in a joint session of Congress. You only meet in a joint session of Congress for two things, State of the Union and to certify the Electoral College. There's a joint meeting, which is a little bit lower than that. But this means a joint session. You have the vice president here and all that. And the fact that you had members who were in peril, There were many of my reporting colleagues, frankly, who saw far worse, were actually in the House chamber, in the Senate chamber, were taken away. I had the benefit of the fact that we were in the basement of the Capitol in a fairly secure room. And so my photographer, we talk about the importance of our photographers, Paul Fifield. He was working with me that day, and we had it set up so I could hear the House and Senate chambers in both of my earpieces, depending on which I needed to hear, thinking we're going to be talking about the Electoral College all day long. But I could hear them giving instructions to the House members how they were going to try to get them out through the rotunda, reach under your chairs and get a gas mask, an escape hood. And so after we start to see that this is really going bad, Paul took some TV cables and some chairs, and there are two doors to the room that we were in, and we kind of jerry-rigged them so nobody could open the door from the outside. Uh, We hung coats over the windows so people couldn't see in here, know that we were even here. And I thought about, well, what do we do if we have to get out of here? I know this building like the back of my hand. There is one place, which I will not divulge, that we could go that's very close here, that you could go and they would never, ever, ever find you. So that was on my list. I remember getting text messages from people saying, are you okay? And I, I, I tried to be reassured them. I said, I, I have a plan, is what I said. I thought I could get out. There's, there's underground tunnels over to the Library of Congress, not far from where I was that day. And I could go out that way, and they could, would probably never find you there. There's other places I could go, they'd never find you. But I got some pretty good places up here that they would never find you, frankly. And so I'm kind of keeping that in the back of my mind, but also understanding what the severity of this both is from a violent standpoint and from an historic moment to 
American democracy and what was going on that day. And again, precision of getting it right, calling them not demonstrators, rioters, explaining the process of what they were trying to do with the Electoral College and why there was such great import that day. And then getting it on the air. And people said, well, you know, did you, you know, I look back at, the, at that moment. I was on the air for almost 16 hours straight. And it was like, no, because you, you process moment to moment. Okay, what's happening now? What's happening here? Do you have something? Do you have some context to provide to Bill Hemmer or Dana Perino or Brett Baer, whoever was on the air at that hour? And so it was a constant shifting back and forth and calling people and email and, and, and everything. And they finally got you know, the building secured some hours later, and then it was to go back to the Electoral College. And so now you shift back to that and explaining the process. And they're considering Arizona and, you know, everything. And what's the vote? And, you know, the things that we do around here every day. And we finished our our last live shot about four o'clock in the morning. And I remember when they, because they wrapped up the Electoral College certification just before four o'clock. And I was on the air with John Scott and Jillian Turner at that point. And then we did a a live shot at four o'clock in the morning. And I remember I ended the about 3.50 a.m. live shot because they just finished it. And I said at the end of the live shot, peace. Because I thought at that moment, that's something that needed to be said. And it just, I didn't etch it out. It just kind of happened. Because I thought it was important that if there was anything, regardless of one's political persuasion, that peace was what they needed. They needed to bring down the temperature in the Capitol. And that is a day that, no matter what, I think will be hard-pressed to come off my list as number one. You guided all of us through that moment in history, and it felt as though, I don't know if you feel this way, but everything that you've been through in your career kind of led up to that moment. It's as though you had to wear so many different hats um, and so many of the different experiences that you had over the over your career, you used all of the lessons you've learned on that one day. Is that how it felt? Because that's how that's how it seemed as somebody who does this for a living, and anybody who's been in a rolling thunder situation, which means you are nonstop on air. You have to. Um, you are thinking about a billion things at the same time, but at the same, you need to also find clarity <laughs> and purpose, right. and um, and also try to stay as current as you can, um, and um, and accurate. And uh, you guided us through such a, a scary and tumultuous time. And the fact that you stayed in the basement, I mean, God love you for that because you were able to stay on air. Um, and it doesn't matter if we can't get you on air. And right. because you were in a safe position, you were able to uh, get us information in real time and to provide the context that we so desperately need. You know, and Chad is venerable and a legend because uh, everybody knows that he knows the Capitol like the back of his hand. And if there was anybody who could guide us through that, it was only Chad Pergram. So, Chad, thank you. That uh, an incredible story. And, and we love you here at Fox. And thank you for all that you've done. And um, thank you. Well, thank thank you to everybody you as well. Yeah, of course. And, and thank you to everyone for listening. And please subscribe, rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or at FoxNewsPodcast.com. Let us know your top five you've been listening to fox top five on the fox news podcast network
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.